welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and I am going to quite figuratively introduce a new thread into the World Wild Conversations today. Um, I say that because we're going to be talking about nettle fibre and, in fact, nettle fabric. Um, but it gives me an excuse to do this kind of uh, word wordplay thing, which, in a way, I'm not even sure it is wordplay. I think it's quite serious business to be uh, weaving threads of meaning into uh, fabric of uh well meaning and culture um which comes in in you know quite an important way um as part of what connects us to land and biological processes or or, or other species um because as i've mentioned before I, I i think there is a concern about using the language of mechanisms to frame our world and and to discuss our ideas um for example i'm a reading i'm reading um a book about the gut flora at the moment it's uh, called the gut brain gut brain something the point is that in this book there's a lot of use of um computer metaphors to describe what's going on and i actually think it's unhelpful uh because it it makes us frame things in mechanical ways um with all the attendant problems with that you know um the machines are, are closed systems machines involve linear cause and effect and machines don't have soft surfaces with semi-permeable membranes. These are, these are all things. I think I will do a particular, um, you know, conversation based around in, in entirely this subject at some point. Uh, but on the other hand, just to touch on it briefly now, I think that when we we start using metaphors um, and images from the biological world, from this living organic world, which is full of soft surfaces and and um, exchanges passing through soft membranes um so that it's very difficult to see where one thing starts and another ends um and we have the the pattern of um well just the the complex patterns uh the circular causality um and this kind of exchange which constitutes a form of union between one species and another uh, one organism and another. I think when we start thinking in these ways, we're actually being true to ourselves rather than alienating ourselves. And also, I feel that this is a way in which we begin to enter this kind of animist space where we see the whole world as living and having um, the qualities of, well, relational qualities that, 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 that we have relationship with every other living thing. Um, when we talk in these ways, we're bringing that realization into our our daily consciousness, and so we're opening up a space to be more biological, to be more ecological, to be more reciprocal. Uh, since these, you know, reciprocity is the is the actual quality and characteristic of organic life. Um, whereas, uh, you know, when we think in terms of mechanical metaphors, we are talking in terms of of hard boundaries. And also, very importantly, a lack of personhood, um, because reciprocity can only only um, happen between living things. Which um, I'm increasingly thinking there's a there's an integral sense of of personhood um, about the nature of of, of living. Um, personhood and and being are, are fairly closely woven together. Okay, well, I just um, I wouldn't say I couldn't resist. I didn't want to resist the opportunity to um, elaborate a bit more on that kind of metaphorical space. And so we have um, a wonderful conversation this week all about nettle fibre. And um, I'm talking to Gillian Edom, 
who seems to be um, very authoritative in the in the field of the history of nettle fiber um, and some of the te- technicalities of, of the process. And Gilliam actually got in touch very recently uh, to, to point out a, a, a mistake on on um, one of the blogs I've written where I mentioned nettle fiber and said something that wasn't true. And um, that's led to this conversation. And yeah, I won't say more about that because we go into it in some depth in the course of the uh, of the podcast. But um, suffice it to say, this subject of fiber and fabric from wild things does just begin to open up the space uh, to be more, um, you know, to have more breadth of coverage with regard to the use of wild resources and the potential for the use of wild resources and how we can uh, begin to weave culture um, that integrates people who live in a place with with their surroundings because they find another uh, thing that they have daily use of. And obviously we have daily use of clothes, especially in, in our current climate. Um, that's a necessity. And uh, there's there's an opportunity for something to develop around this this nettle fiber, as you'll see. That's uh, that's uh, part of the, the, the discussion that you're going to hear. And I will be looking at other um, topics around this, you know, like uh, you know, other kinds of weaving, for example, like basket basket making um, has a lot of different materials that, that could be gathered from the wild and utilized. Um, uh, I think that's a, a subject we need to also explore a bit more, having touched upon it previously with Anna Lewington. And there are, there are a lot of other subjects we could be covering with regard to um, utilization of wild plants that we can find in our immediate surroundings. Okay, so I think that's enough by way of introduction, and um, we'll get on with the conversation with Gillian now. Of course, this, this conversation all goes back to you emailing me uh, last week and pointing out an error on my website. <laughs> Actually, I, you must realise I don't normally, but I see so many things, I think, oh, here we go again. And yeah. I don't bother, I just ignore them. But I thought, no, this person is writing about really sensible things and you're obviously very knowledgeable. And I just thought, Oh, I've just mentioned that because I've actually people have done it to me and I haven't minded because it's not no. being malicious. It's just sort of adjusting something um, because it is a huge assumption that people make about metal fibre. And um, there's well, nothing really in literature to to challenge that. Yeah, well, I'm obviously, I obviously when I, at the time of writing, I'm, I said, I think what, what you pointed out that I'd said was that nettles used to be the major fibre crop in Europe. That, I can only think I must have been labouring under that illusion at the time, and and I wrote it down. But it's clearly I, I think I I've uh, bit, I'm better informed now, and I, I wouldn't make that statement now. But I'm really glad you pointed it out because um, yeah, I mean we all we're all guilty of talking nonsense at times. <laughs> well, I was I wasn't actually saying that you were talking. No, but I, I clearly was. I clearly was, and you know, and I think you know, I, I'm I'm really interested in the whole thing around expertise and so on. You know, because I I don't actually believe in experts. I just believe in everybody still uh, learning. You know, whoever yeah. they you know, and 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 a friend. Well, no, not really a friend, but uh, this bloke I used to kind of listen to his talks and that. Um, he he once said, when we look back, um, you know, five years ago, we we realised what idiots we were. <laughs> he said the trick would be to know that we're idiots now. So, and then we could have that level of openness that would probably uh, 
we, we'd learn more now if we, if we maybe, would. Yeah. Maybe we need to assume that we're idiots yes. and then um, work on that basis. Work on that basis. But the thing is, obviously, what we all need is to talk to people who know more about things than we do. So, you know, the, 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 the great thing for me about looking forward to this conversation is, is knowing that you know a lot more about nettle fibre than I do, because I think it's such a fascinating subject. And also, I'm so excited at the prospect of, you know, um, having been wrong about nettle fibre being a major crop in the past, I've nevertheless been dreaming about it becoming a major crop in the future, which which maybe maybe this uh, this whole I mean, you've pointed out to me this Facebook group, which I've joined or just asked to join uh, where, where people are. And it looks very vibrant, people discussing um, nettle fiber. And it looks like maybe you know, maybe it's true that it's the opposite is true, that there's more interest in nettle fiber now than there has ever been. I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, there has been continual interest in nettle fibre. It raises its head continuously uh, over the last however many years. The Facebook group um, has made something possible that's not been, ha been possible in the past, is for individual people who have been interested in nettle fibre to communicate with one another. So when I started my research more than 20 years ago, this is before social media, and it was in the early days of internet. So um, I spent a lot of time trying to make contact with people who had any, any knowledge at all of nettles or nettle fibre. And I wrote so many letters and then I wrote emails. So I did lots of people didn't weren't accessible my email then. This is not that long ago, really. And um, so I used to spend a lot of time writing letters, ringing people up, trying to track people down to ask them. Um, that could happen in five minutes now. Um, yeah. And not only that, is that the, even, even the concept that nettle fibre could be made from nettles has got more widely distributed. So people wouldn't even have heard of it before. Now it comes right before them and they pick up on it. So there is this worldwide gathering together of information mm. and people um, who are all beavering away, <laughs> as you'll see, um, trying to achieve it. Well, I just wonder, because, you know, we've just exchanged a couple of emails. So this is, this is yeah. I don't even know, like, what, what do you do for a living? What's your background? And, you know, how does that all fit into your... Um, Me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't really know to start with that. So at the moment, my work is mostly as an oral historian, so I work mostly on Heritage Lottery Fund projects. Um, in the past, well, I originally trained to be. A Could you tell teacher. me more about what what an oral what do you what what you do as an oral historian? That sounds fascinating. Okay, well, apart from working with volunteers sometimes and organising them and training them and organising them, I, the best bit is to actually go out and interview people. So I don't know if you know about Heritage Lottery Fund projects. Normally, yeah. they're trying to find out some heritage aspect of a place or, um, or something that's happened. So, for example, the, the most recent one I'm working on is a church in Chichester, and they are having a new building, new building work. And as part of their funding, they have to have a heritage element to that. So okay. they're collecting people's stories about the various things that happened over, you know, in living memory. Um, the last one I did was about Selsey fishermen 
um, and has been, um, I've worked on a mental health project and uh, a woodland project. Yeah. Archaeology. So there's all sorts of things. So what you do is you, you go along and you interview people and um, just basically ask them what their experiences and their opinions are. So it's, it's not like an interview on television or radio. It's not like a newspaper interview. You're, you're giving them the opportunity to have a voice. And um, although you want, obviously want them to provide information for the project, it's an opportunity for them to actually talk about what they know personally yeah. without being constrained yeah. um, or not too constrained. And that way you sort of, you discover a whole new world, you know, you become a little mini expert in something because you've sat and listened to all these different people who have had different experiences and even different perspectives. So completely polarizing um, positions on something, you know, someone will say this, so they may be actively, for example, in the fishing project, uh, you'd have a fisherman who are finding a lot of constraints by the authorities. And then you'd interview someone from the authorities to explain why those constraints are necessary. So, you know, you get opposite points of view and that sort of thing. And and you and because people don't feel threatened, they don't feel that everything is going to be out there, whatever they say, you know, they have control over the um, what happens to that interview. So if they say, I don't want you to use that bit, then you don't use that bit. But, you know, you don't actually put the whole thing out there. When, when you're using it in a project, you, you take elements of that, interview and you use them to tell the story the bigger story but what what is the final output from that where, where, where do uh, the interviews end up oh the interviews normally they normally end up if there's an organization who have commissioned the project then they will keep copies but they always end up in the county record office so they become a historical a research tool for the future and um and they're looked after there, they're protected, all their copyrights protected and permissions and things like that. And But in the project, what you would have some exhibition or a book or something like that going on, and then you'd use those interviews and um, take parts of them that were suitable. And you don't use the, the tricky stuff, there's no point, and, um, unless it's relevant, of course. Yeah. But you, 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 you take that and build a story people to come and actually listen to or to read about and then they and and you've got voices real voices real people saying things so that's how it normally works but I, it's interesting it sounds fascinating I, th I think that there's a project that happened near here um which um i don't know if it was oral history as such but i reckon it must have been heritage lottery funded funded um some of the ladies in the village uh spent however long going around talking to people to get the the old the old field names oh really and, good yeah and the output from that was um we've got a, a great big map now so i'm i'm based in a village called charton at least that's where the business is based mm. um this is where i'm sitting now and just up the road in the village hall there's a massive map on the wall of charton and all the old field names are, that are on there. And it's um, so some of the fields are built on now, but still the, the, they're still uh, marked out in the old form of the field with the field name. And I can tell you a lovely story, actually. There's there's one uh, one of the field names, which is um, mostly built on now. Their house is next to a river. 
and the field name is um, Dabchick, which I don't know if you know your birds, but Dabchick is is uh, another name for the com the uh, little grebe. Well, this field, which is now mostly houses, as I say, is right next to the river, and it's actually right next to the where the road crosses the river. So you can stand on the bridge next to the river, looking at what used to be the Dabchick field, and guess what? I wouldn't say nine times out of ten, but maybe three times out of ten, when you stand on that bridge, you will see a little grebe. So you know that that's why the field was called that. And it's the only place that I reliably see little grebes along that river, even though they must be there, but it's it's where they seem to most like to be. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's I, it just makes me think that, that, that I didn't know how that project got funded, but it's quite likely that it was a, a heritage one. It sounds a great thing that there, there's money going into people exploring... Um, I guess the uh, the living local history in that way. Yeah, it is. There's some really good results sometimes, and there's also sort of, all sort of social impacts as well. You know, when people who get involved, and and so when I was working on the um, what's the Grainingwell project, which was to do with the closure of a, a the local mental hospital and the impact that that had, um, and that was fascinating as well. But there was. The aim, the one of the main aims for that project was to reduce the stigma around mental health, and it certainly did that, and it really caused people to think and to engage actually. So that was really worthwhile. But you know, the thing is that these, the, what I did in these projects, all these people I talked to, this knowledge that I sort of acquired, it keeps coming back. So it keeps coming back into my life and into my head and <clears throat> becoming still relevant to all sorts of other things as well you know so um it's, good. it's quite a good job hard work <laughs> yeah well, stories, stories are like that i know they're tapestry yeah. all, all every story is another thread and and it all weaves into the i guess the the meta story that we have as individuals and then any other meta story that we have as collectively it's funny, I, I, can't, I can't resist saying, you're talking about closure of mental hospital. That's another local story here. We had a big, uh, well, they called it an asylum back then, called uh, St. Augustine's up on the hill. And uh, there's, there's people still alive now that remember. They used to uh, let the, the inmates out to walk around the village, but they'd mm -hmm. be chained together. They'd have, they'd have manacles around their ankles and they'd be chained together so they couldn't couldn't run away. It's, yeah, it's extraordinary to think that within living memory, that kind of stuff was was happening in the village. So, how, how do we get from um, oral history to to uh, to your involvement with with nettle fibre and fabric? Assuming that there's a link between your interest in in that kind of history with with to um, your interest in the, in in the nettle history, it is no, not, no, really. not at all. Oh, okay. No, no, it's just these are accidents of my life. Yeah. Most of the things that I've done, um, got involved with, um, are sort of natural things to have happened at the time, but I haven't sought them out. You know, they've happened to me and I've followed a path and ended up getting lost, literally. And, and so, you know, I start, um, the oral history started because I got um, work on a project in West Sussex Record Office. And that led from one thing to another. And, you know, that's many years ago. And um, so I've ended up doing this as a freelancer. Um, the nettle thing was uh, probably from birth, but we won't go that far. <laughs> that's a long time ago. Um, so there's this natural, I've had this natural interest in plants 
Yeah. Now, I don't know where that came from because my the rest of my family aren't the same, but I had right. this thing about plants and also compost heaps. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so I, you know, you know how you sort of learn as a child, you, you become aware of something and then you keep looking at it and thinking about it. And no one tells you, actually, you can get interested in that and you can you can do something with it. So I had to find it out myself. Um, but nettles so nettles I'm just trying to think when I I had children at home and I stayed home to look after them I had a large number and um but as I really wanted to do that I loved it um how many kids did you have I've only got four <laughs> um <laughs> there were times you know when it seemed quite a lot um what that so that was a long time ago and and I used to get in, this is before google by the way so I go to the library and I would borrow all these books about plants and um, nutrition and, and anything that I was interested in at the time, but frequently plants and herbs. And I, would, I do remember having this one book, um, which is about herbs. And <clears throat> now I know that what the man was writing about was complete rubbish, actually, because I found out the truth. But he, he did he, he put these things in about nettles. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. And then I started to try and find out more about nettles. And I discovered, actually, that no one's written a book about nettles. So I thought, you know, I mulled that over for some time. Um, and at the same time, I was also interested in textiles. And I'd um, acquired a spindle and some fleece. And I'd started to, to spin um, in between feeding children and cleaning up after them and that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't do this in a big way. It was just all ex very experimental. Yeah. And um, and I do remember <clears throat> the one uh, on a, the occasion that I decided to write this book about metals. And it was my uh, one of my daughter's birthday trips. She must have been about 11 or 12. And it was just before Christmas. And we went, I took her and her friends swimming. And I sat on this little table watching them writing a Christmas letter. And, I, and it's so vivid. And I wrote in this letter, I'm going to write a book about nettles. Now, where did that come from? You know, and then I, it was like I committed myself then, written <laughs> it down. <laughs> so off I went and, and I started and, and, and I started badly because I just went and looked in books and wrote down everything that it said. And, and so my whole research journey was a learning experience as well. And um and all the time, I, I suddenly I get really overwhelmed. I think, oh, I feel, oh, no, this is, this is terrible. I can't do this. It's too over, overwhelming. And then I'd say, what, think, well, I don't have to do it today. And, um, in fact, no one knows about it, so no one's going to hold me to account, really, apart from what I'd written in that letter. Um, so, and so it went on, and it went on. And then I began to get deeper and deeper. And um, then I discovered, actually, in order to really write this book, I'm going to need to be a botanist, a biologist, a chemist, a doctor, pharmacologist. These, all these things I needed to, I needed to know about all these things in depth, you know. <laughs> and um, it was really, it, this is where it was going. And then I came across a man, another man who was writing a book on nettles. So I thought, oh, now this is interesting. So I rang him and had a chat. I think he was a bit nervous. Um, but anyway, I rang him and had a chat. And what I did discover is that the area that I had probably had the most interest in, he had not gone into in the same level of depth. And that was the nettle fibre. And I was finding myself by this time really being pulled in 
and you know I, mean, I was ordering like all these research papers and anything that I could find I was going on these journeys to um, meet people who are involved in metal fiber you know it was like this thing that got bigger and bigger and um but but and also one of the most one of the most important places I went was Kew actually I I made friends with um someone who um was really really helpful gave me lots of information and she actually got me she worked in the center for economic botany in Kew and she got me a pass to get in the building who was it uh her name's Laura Hastings and um, do you know Laura? She's she's. I've had some correspondence with her. I haven't. I haven't met her. I thought it might be. Oh, there was a there was a guy, Hugh Prendergast, and a lady. Oh Howard yes, I knew Hugh. Yeah. Oh, I can't think of her name is, but they wrote they wrote a book about um, wild harvests, things that could be. I, used. I've got it here actually. Yes. So, <laughs> put me out of my misery. Where... It's uh, Helen Sanderson. Yes, Helen Sanderson. Yeah, she's the one her. I actually spend a lot of time interacting with, so it's no, no excuse for forgetting her name. But um, anyway, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's okay. the Centre for Economic Botany I'm familiar with. They, 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 they're all about this kind of plant use thing, basically, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And and so I would. They've got an archive in in there, and I spent hours, days, going through all the documentation about nettles. And that is where I got my real source information about the history. So, so the, the, at the same time that I was doing this research, I was also experimenting. So anything I read about ex nettle fibre extraction, I would go through that process of trying it. You know, so I had to do it with clogs. I had some leather clogs and I had to do it. And I had nettles in the bath. People couldn't have baths in the house, but we had a shower as well, so that so was all right. Were the, kids, were the kids still at home at this point? Oh, yeah, yeah. They can tell you stories. <laughs> I love it. And we had, I had never... the journey, whether they liked it or not. Well, actually, my, my older daughter, the other, just recently, she said to me, oh, we had a half landing going up the stairs, and I'd managed to acquire from Hamburg Botanical Institute some um, Girardinia diversifolia, so that's a Nepalese nettle. Oh, I have a friend Seeds. as well. That. You know, you know, I mentioned that the, the, the kill brides because I confused yeah. you yeah. with um, the other nettle lady. Um, well, Thomas did a did a research project on on that um, Nepalese nettle. So oh right, yeah. Well, I, I, so I managed to um, cultivate. I managed to germinate these plants. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I had one on the landing. It was quite big. No, really ferocious stingers, really. I mean, you think that we've got bad ones, but this is a really big stinger. And uh, it used to be... <laughs> you, you very kindly left it on the landing. <laughs> yeah. As... And, and my daughter said, actually, every time she went past, she got stung by the stinger. <laughs> well, the thing is, it got quite big. And um, what, I, I, what I knew it needed... Just, just stop going upstairs when it got quite big. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were very patient really I, I mean they probably I'm sure they moaned but you know you don't take any notice of children moaning do you anyway so I decided that what I needed to do was to find a tropical greenhouse route to go in to be looked after so I managed to find one in Poolborough which was quite somewhere away and I, I contacted this person and said you know I've got this metal you know would, would you mind looking after it and um so he took this in nettle in and then 
I went back to visit it once and it was like a triffid. He was really proud of it. It was absolutely massive. And um, do you know, I've never been back since. And I <laughs> haven't taken over the whole of this greenhouse. But it, it, he was commercial, um, had commercial greenhouses, and, but he looked after this um, nettle. And it was, it was amazing, you know. I feel bad that I haven't been back, but, you know, I couldn't fit it in. It was just too much. So anyway, that was just one of the things. Um, but anyway, yeah, so nettles did rather creep into the house in many forms. And um, so I spent a lot of time retting and dew retting, water retting. You, 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 you took over the family bath. for. Well, yeah. now and then, yeah, because I had to soak them, yeah. Um, and I, we had a pond at the back, so I did pond retting. I tried river retting. Could you explain retting? Oh, retting is a, a fancy word for rotting. Okay. So the purpose of retting is to break down the um, plant material and the gums and pectins that hold the fibres together. So the bits that aren't the fibre, it's kind of getting rid of those for you? Or... Yeah. Do you want me to explain how nettles work? Yeah, go on then. Okay. So there you have your nettle. And um, right on the inside, there's a, there's a hollow tube right um and um i mean there are various layers but the main layers are out around that tube you will have sort of xylem and flown those those sort of feeding and water yeah yeah then out and there are other cells all mixed in as well then then outside of that you have what are called the slerenchyma which are the fibers right now if you have flax, uh, flax are very thin and straight and homogenous, really, and they have a high um, percentage of fibre to the stem in relation to the nettles. They've got more fibre in, in a flax stem. And um, they tend to, um, <clears throat> when you remove the fibre, it tends to come off in, in these strands, fibre strands. But in fact, the fibres on these, the bast fibres are not long strands. They're made up of lots of tiny fibre cells. So if you, so, so if you manage to break those down, um, remove all the gums and pectins and separate them from one another, they will be really small, but very, very fine. Um, so I, I have this theory, and, and no one's ever contested it, or, and I've never even seen anyone really saying I'm sure there's an expert out there who can clarify this so my belief is that when a nettle grows um, this is the maximum time uh, growth time for the, the fibers the fiber cells because their purpose is to support the stem as it grows up you know nettles grow quite quickly yeah. so so you can imagine that the core is quite soft so when they're growing fast um, and they're growing their leaves, they would probably fall over if they didn't have the support of these fibres. Can I just stop you? Because it just it makes me realise I've had a misapprehension about this. I thought that the, uh, the xylem and phloem, as you say, mm. um, is that the same as the vascular bundles? Is that correct? Or is that... Anyway, mm. I, thought that those, I, I thought that those tubes that are communicating the... Uh, the, the the stuff up the up the stem mm. but they were giving it structure 
but you're saying that it's actually the fibres that are giving it the structure. So well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they have their part to play. I mean, I, I'm not such an expert okay. that I know, really. Mm. But I, I, all I know is that they are where the, the water and the, and the food sort of yeah. feeds the plant. But that the fibres are there to strengthen the plant. So um, if they are providing support, they, they need the extra support of the fibres. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and then what happens is that as the plant matures, that, that core in the middle starts to lignify. So it has lignin forming in it, which turns it into wood. It doesn't need the fibres anymore then. Okay. Um, and, um, but they're still there, obviously. So... Um, which brings me to my other theory, which I, when I did my MPhil in metal fibre extraction, um, uh, which is also a, a rather long story, but um, I had my my final study was really I was sampling metal um, stems in different places. So I had three places. This is my major study, and um, I would. Um, Every week I would harvest a certain number and then I would go through all the weighing process and I would um, take samples to look at in a microscope um, and then I would um, chop them into certain lengths and then I'd take them back to university. Then I would remove the fibres chemically with sodium hydroxide and ammonia, acetic acid and you know, a lot of water mess everywhere and um when when it was dried then i'd weigh weigh this fiber and that sort of thing so um and, and what i discovered um and i believe this is my thing is that i don't believe that nettles nettle fiber increases significantly in relation to the stem the longer you leave it it's easier to process and remove it from the stem earlier on with not much loss really I don't think compared to if you leave it until after the end of summer when you've got that wooden core in the middle um, that's gone hard and begin and, and everything is becoming tough you know even the bar the, the, the plant material on the outside it's thickening up and it starts to absorb the nettles into into the core and into the bars so it's much harder to, to take off I'll tell you what that's making me think, um, because one of my one of my kind of main thoughts is how could we get more yield from wild landscapes, no matter what, no matter what we're doing with them. And and the, when that comes to food, I often say to people who are who are worried about over harvesting that that they're worrying about nothing in most cases because all we're doing is effectively like we're mowing the lawn, so we we mm -hmm. cut leaves and they grow back. And it doesn't exhaust the plant. They've evolved to cope with this. It's just like a lawn can cope with being mowed because it's evolved to cope with grazing animals grazing it. So I've been thinking about what nettles are good for. Obviously, they're good for eating the, the young greens, and you can do numerous things with those. You can even dry them for tea and whatever. And then I harvest the seeds in the autumn. I've been thinking along the lines of, of you leave the canes there to ret over the winter, which is what some people do, isn't it? And and, and then you harvest them. But, but what you're suggesting, it seems to me, allows for a multiple harvest of stems. Because if you cut that stem before the flower the flower has, has finished doing its business, the plant will just produce another one. So you could potentially get uh, well, 
four or five or, or, or yields of stems in a single season? Well, I think that in theory, in theory that, that might work. But the problem is you've got branching then because you don't have the same stem growing up again. You have more coming out. It's like coppicing. When you cut down that central um, right. trunk, it sends out new shoots from below or wherever it wants to go. Is branching um, a problem? Pardon? Is branching a problem? Could you still use it? with well, the maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think that's worth, you know, it's worth investigating that. Um, in fact, Alan might, Alan, you know, Brown, who started the Facebook page, and he is <laughs> yeah. now Metal Man, I will say, and you should interview him. Um, yeah. He, and he, um, series on he, that, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he might have, um, something to say about that because, I mean, I mean, I, I did all this many years ago, and things have moved on. People have been sharing information, um, and I was basically on my own with no one to really ask, except I did have some people who were helpful, but. Um, now there's a whole community, it seems, of people talking to each other. And there share. is, yeah, yeah, some people doing some really good stuff, actually. Um, but anyway, so, so, so what I did was, you know, I, I eventually, uh, although I experimented and tried, I wasn't trying to produce cloth because I, I don't have the textile skills to do that. Right. Um, so, you know, I then moved on to um, looking at the history of, of metal fibre use, yeah. and um, which no one else was doing. Can I, can I just quickly clarify, mm. what you did in the lab with all of those chemicals, yeah. that was just basically very heavy chemically based retting, in, in effect. It, yeah. That is retting. Whereas what you did in your bath, what were you doing in your bath? Well, um, the, the bath stuff wasn't, I even tried a sheep's trough, that didn't work very well. The thing is, it worked in the pond, because yeah. you have more water, you've got the right sort of bacteria, um, right. and you don't, in, in the sheep's, and you, and you also got the right temperature, because um, it's a bit erratic, these are things not, you can't, Pin them down scientifically. This is the thing. Yeah. You can't say you will. You need to do this, this, and this because you can't control those elements involved. Yeah. You can't control the bacteria in the pond. You can't control the temperature. You can't control the outside weather either. So you just have to, you, you, like people do. You know, when you develop this instinct of knowing, yeah. it's you can't pin that into a a shape or a, you can't pin that down. It's just something. You know, you know, it's like when I cook a cake, I I listen to see if it's ready. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't do it really by time because it doesn't work like that. Things are always changing. Nothing's ever the same. So I listen to see if it's ready. Are you and listening I, to yourself or, 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 or looking at the cake and, and allowing that to give you information? Well, as I well? look at the cake. If yes. it looks as it could be done, it may not be done. And I have to know what's going on inside. So that's when I listen. And I normally get it right, although I have burnt my face <laughs> in the past. So you're actually listening to the cake. You're putting yeah. your ear next to the cake. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant you were listening to your, your gut, you know, your inner... No, no, I actually listen to the cake. <laughs> listen to the cake. Mm, I've made many cakes. Anyway, so this is a sort of thing that you, you develop a sort of inner instinct of when that is ready, when that's done, when that's right, you know? Okay, um, but... You've, you've, you've just told me that when you when you use that instinct in regard to cake, 
you're using your senses in a very particular way by putting your ear next to the cake. Yeah. So what, what, how do you use your senses to know when the thing's retted? Well, you, you look at it, you feel it, you, you check it, and you, get, you sort of, you, you know, it. you just do this or whatever, and you would know. Like many things in life that people do and people used to in the past, they would know when something was ready, like the farmer knows when his corn's ready and all those things. You, you're not doing it by machines. You're not doing it by, you know, or, or any sort of technological you, way. You, you're, you're... you don't have a retometer that you just put No, your... no, no. Uh, and so you, you, you sort of know um, whether it's ready or not. So anyway, I, I did have quite a lot of success in pond retting. Um, and then I would boil things up in wood ash and it should break down the gums and things. But, but I wasn't concerned with producing a large end product. I wanted to know how it worked. And I was trying out all sorts, you know, I came across all sorts of different methods and I would just keep testing them and testing them because I was interested in the process. Mm. Um, in university, it has to be done with a view to commercialization, obviously. So you're having to write down every single detail, every single variable. Um, I mean, it was only done in very small um, quantities. So in terms of pollution, it wasn't creating vast amounts of pollution. Yeah. But it was producing results that you know gave more knowledge and things. So, um, and it was an effect. It was an effective way of extracting the fiber but very heavy duty you, know, you just wouldn't do it normally You're using the sodium hydroxide and whatnot yeah yeah and, and very high um very hot oven and then acetic acid and ammonia and lots and lots of water for cleaning it up and things uh, i mean just just so that we kind of thoroughly or yeah as, as thoroughly as we can covered covered the uh, the retting thing i will i will just say that the the very small amount of research I've done, but I spoke to the uh, the people um, that um, you, you know. I mentioned in the email I've been to see that factory at that mill, yeah. Yorkshire, where they're making nettles from um, from uh, nettle fibre and, and wool. By the way, in answer to your question, they're getting their nettles from a, from the grounds of a power station. Okay. And those nettles have been selectively bred. So, so their, their project, you probably know, it comes out of this DEFRA-funded project called Sting that happened in the 90s. Yeah, well, I can tell you all about Sting. Sting was going on when I was doing my MPhil. Okay. And I was asked by the professor to come and do an M. I rang him because I wanted to know, oh, what's about this project you're going to do? And he said, well, why don't you come up and talk to us? So I went to Leicester and... Um, um, at the end of this conversation, they said, would you like to come and do an MPhil on metal fibre extraction? Wow. So I said, well, that's something. So I said, yes. So I did my MPhil while that project was starting. Okay. And, um, and I, so I know about Kamira, and um, I also know how they got their um, uh, crossbred ones. These are the Braderman clones, actually, okay. produced between the wars by Gustav Bredemann in Germany. I gave them the contact who produced these actually. So I was slightly instrumental in that. And- um, Mind you, I was trying to find nettle people about 10 years ago. I was I just- Anyone, yeah. Isn't that odd? <laughs> so, um, uh, so I'm the person who was producing these at the time. He, well, this is um, um, Jens Dreyer 
who was a German, young German man, who in the nine, late 90s, he, he was at Botanical, at Hamburg Botanical Institute doing an, um, a PhD. And yeah. what he did was he, he, they still had the original nettle clone, they called them clones, but they weren't genetically modified, obviously, they were just crossbred. And um, he, um, they still had these, um, the original stock, but they couldn't remember, or he wanted to retest them to see if they still had the, the qualities that them was, they were supposed to have had. So that was his PhD to reevaluate these clones, and then he went on to start to uh, propagate them as well. I even went to Germany because I, I'm still friends with Jens. He's a lovely man, actually. He came to visit me a couple of years ago with his wife and dog, and um, <coughs> uh, he he invited me, and I, I went and stayed with him and um, helped him in his greenhouse with his helpers propagating these nettle clones so that yep. was quite fun anyway so i have i saw the field of cultivated nettles that were being cultivated in leicester at the time and i do know that they went that what had to be happened is they had to be transported the stems had to go to cornwall because there was a farmer there who was had a decorticator it was a bit complicated i don't know all the details and it was a long time ago um but Kamira was the person who was taking the fiber and um, using it so I'm glad that they're still using local nettles rather than importing them because once they get imported then I get suspicious <laughs> well I was just because the wool was coming from New Zealand but they said they said that the, the, the particular qualities they wanted mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't an English wool that had this I forget what the spec was but they said but mm -hmm. we don't have an English wool that can do this um but they, but it was nettles made in a uh, that were being grown on the grounds of a power station for some reason um, and harvested every year, and then the, and then the end result of this fabric they were making, which we saw great rolls of, mm. took some away. We were thinking of making a bag from them, which mm. makes to do it, um, but uh, like a foraging bag. But um, but anyway, they're, they're mostly being used for upholstery fabric in the north of England for trains and buses. So I just think it's, it's yeah. charming. But I, think, I wonder who's processing the fibre. Are they doing it? No, I don't think so. I think they get they get uh, well, maybe they are, but but we didn't see. Did we see the fiber? I think we saw. No, we just saw rolls of fabric. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. We had a whole tour of the place, yeah, but okay. uh, I can't remember if we saw the fiber. But what what they told me about the uh, retting process was that that part of the part of the sting project findings had been that if you just leave the the nettles over winter. That then the the following spring that the the retting has already happened. Now I've had a quick look on on the uh, the nettle group that you put me mm. on. I think there's some disagreement about that. Some people say, well, by springtime they've over retted and or or or, or not enough, and it's not, it doesn't seem to be as reliable as as this uh, this chap was implying. But still, that did seem to be an interesting thing that people realise you 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 do get a sort of retting process that happens if you just leave them alone and come back in the spring. Yeah, you see that all. See, everyone's right and everyone's wrong. Okay. You're, you're then depending on variables that you can't control. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it will work and sometimes it won't, depending on the weather you've put them, depending on the weather, the conditions. You know, you can't determine that. It will happen. Can you tune your, uh, your in intuition and your hands and so on to go out and feel those things and, and, and keep an eye on a patch and say, 
okay, they're just right now or they're not quite or you think you could do that? And, and I'm and then... sure that I tell you what, if they're going to use them in a commercial um, product, they're not going to just let them get on with it on there. They they will be monitoring them. Well, that's true. Mm. Well, yeah. so actually, that's the proof of the puddings in the eating, isn't it? So that, mm. that's what they're doing. They're taking them. They're not using these great big ponds to to wreck them in. They are actually leaving them over winter. So there must be somebody that's that's keeping an eye on them to see when they're yeah. ready. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to to make sure that we've we've gone into all of that retting stuff that we possibly could. But just just to say, okay, just one last thing. Retting and rotting, of course, rotting involves microbial stuff. So strictly speaking, you know, the stuff that's happening in your pond was retting according to that definition. But when you're just using the chemicals in the lab, that isn't strictly speaking rotting because there's no. Uh, no, it's no. not rotting. Well, it is. It's, it's rotting very fast. It's just, rotting, artificial rotting. It just depends whether we're saying the microbial thing is part of the definition of rotting. But anyway, I'm just a bit of a stickler for definition, so I just wanted to clarify that. Well, of course, so, oh, yes. Oh, just say that dew retting uses yeah. fungi, so that the retting process is different because it uses fungi dew. rather than bacteria. What is dew retting? Dew retting is when you just lay it on the grass. Okay. Oh, of course, maybe that's what they're doing. They're dew retting. Kamara, have you just... No, they, they leave it. They leave them standing. Oh, do they? Yeah, they leave them standing. Mm. There may be more to it than what he said, but but it did seem to be that that was at least part of their process, to, to leave them standing for, for longer than people used to. Yeah. Mm. Wow, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, the thing is, if you've got a nettle patch in your garden, I, I have generally found at the end of a winter, I mean, I've, I've always been aware of nettles, you know, I pull them around, poke them and this sort of thing. And you can't, you do get fibre off them, but it's rather um, a bit sparse normally. And I would think probably not as strong as if you rescued it earlier in the season, because it's been out there in the elements. It will weaken. It won't be as strong. Further mm. inquiry needed. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I sort of I kind of steered us back onto that to make sure we'd covered all the all the reading ground that we could at least broadly speaking. So, but but you were about to launch into then you moved into the uh, the, the the history side more more so. Yeah, yeah. So my book that this in fact I did went and did my MPL didn't still hadn't written a book you know. Okay. <laughs> so there is a significant amount about the history in in my um, thesis, but. Um, I still had this book to write that was, and I had, you know, I had a draft and I had it, you know, how it is a book can take a long time to, to come together. And um, I, in the meantime, I was doing all the other things in my life that I do. I was actually at the time I was teaching environmental education. I was a field study teacher. So I was doing that. And um, uh, one person uh, in another uh, field study place said oh would you come and do a nettle day um, so I did because at the time there was a website called be nice to nettles week and it was it's, it's, I think you can still find it but it's not really it doesn't seem very active anymore so for a few years this um, this whoever it was set up this nettle place and I actually sort of wrote into them and said actually you know there's one or two things on your website that are not quite right <laughs> See, I did it again. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute because, in fact, it's really important yeah. to to stop to to stop false information from being 
it's spread around. Anyway, so I contacted them and, and um, what they had on their website was events. So they determined that in a certain week in May, I think it was the end of May, this was Be Nice to Nettles Week, and it became a national thing. And um, people would hold nettle events. And one of the local field studies centers, would you come and do a nettle day? So I went and did this nettle day. Now, I happen to be have a contact in the Natural History Museum. His name's Roy Vickery. He actually wrote the forward to my book. And um, Roy is a really amazing person. He's retired now, but he has been for years. He's been gathering plant folklore and um, he had this. People used to send stuff into him. So every time he had anything about nettles, he'd send it on to me. You know, when you go out there researching, sometimes a lot of people just not interested. They don't respond. Then some people become really helpful, you know, and it's and it's wonderful. And I do remember I'd never met him. But one day I had to go to London to collect some passports and I had several hours free. So I thought, oh, I'll just nip over to the Natural History Museum and see if I can find Roy's. Yep. <laughs> Gate crashed him. And um, he... He was so kind. He looked a bit taken aback for a minute. Oh, here's this woman. Um, but he took me to the herbarium. I'd never been to a herbarium before. And I sat and looked at the, you know, the nettles in, in this herbarium. In these, and it was just wonderful, you know. Have you been to a herbarium? I mean, I've amazing places. Been one, I've been to the one at Kew, uh, not Kew, um, the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. Yeah. 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 So, so that was a wonderful thing. Anyway, um, so then I mentioned it to, to Roy that, you know, I was going to do this little day. And he said, oh, we should have one at the Natural History Museum. So for a few years, they had these nettle weekends and, and sort of based in the wildlife garden. I made friends with Caroline Ware, who was running that garden. And, and you know, it was it was so nice um, to be able to go up there. But anyway, one one year they said, oh, would you be able to bring your book? Well, wasn't ready so I had to rush to get this book finished so that I could take it up there when I went for the nettle weekend and that was in 2010. You had a deadline. Pardon? You found a deadline. I had a deadline but unfortunately because of the deadline um, it was not as good as I wanted it to be you know there were errors in there and, and I felt I felt unsatisfied with it. it was not right so I knew in my head that I needed to um, redo it and I've been redoing it in my head for many years but then of course the Nettles for Textiles group made me realise I have to actually do it now because we need to get the facts out there yeah. so so the thing is lots of it's very you know, in history and it happens not just with nettles but in all of history um, there are lots of errors because thing misinformation can get in and now, of course, things get very widely spread and books yeah. become popular. And if books that are popular and well-known put down in the information that is not quite right, then it becomes really fixed and, and it's difficult to shift. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's... So Oliver, Oliver Rackham was, was very uh, tough on this. He, he, he called those things bibliographic echoes. Mm. So someone says something that's wrong and somebody else reads it and repeats yeah. it in another book and that's called a bibliographic echo and it keeps going down. But like, there's something worse than that happening now, obviously, which is why it's so important that you email people and tell them that they've got things that are wrong on their website. Because, you know, I was just it's so funny because I was just telling my daughter this week, she's going, oh, well, I Googled this and blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, so 
you know that's true then? Well, I said, look, darling, anyone can put anything up on the internet. Yeah. And if, unfortunately, that person's website is getting more hits than anybody else's, all of a sudden it's got this sort of apparent truth claim because it's the first thing that came up on Google. You opened it up and you think it's the truth. Whereas, I mean, I've (laughs) sincerely written something wrong in, in in my webpage and people think I'm an expert. They're reading mm-hmm. my wrong thing, which I will get changed this week, and 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 and, and they they go around repeating my error that that metals mm. it's the major fiber crop in Europe. So I mean, I completely agree, but like w- websites make it worse, I think, because well, they do, they do now, yeah. Go to a library and take the trouble to find a book and start reading it. You just Google it, metal fiber, and and you get this mm-hmm. this factoid come out, which then gets repeated on fifty thousand other websites. So so yeah, I mean, I think. It's um anyway, I agree with you. Well, when I was doing my when I was doing my research, I mean, I, I got to when I looked in the book, I didn't even bother to look in the book. I looked to see if it had references first, because if there are no references, then it was useless to me. Because right. what I needed to do yeah. is then go to that reference, and so I would keep tracking back on anything that I found. I kept tracking back until I got to the original source I could. And and then not only looked at that original source, but looked at its context. Because, yep. you know, a source can mean all sorts of things, depending on what caused that source to be well, created. And sorry, sorry to keep butting in, but I just can't resist just pointing this out. Like, So we, we had a, uh, a, a four-year battle with Natural England, which actually we kind of lost in the end because the uh, legal process didn't seem to be interested in, in the actual facts or the evidence. They just said they're Natural England, so they must be right. Um, but part of Natural England's case against us, because we were harvesting sea kale down at Dungeness, and they, 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 they dragged out these old historical floras, at least this guy called uh, Jonathan Cox did, he was their plant expert witness, um, from Dorset, tracking the, the uh, supposed um, state of health of the populations of sea kale down there. And so one guy at one point says there's loads of sea kale, now another guy, because it changes, who is the county recorder? You know, that's what the BSBI have. They have a guy in each county that's recording the floor. And, and at one point, um, or whether it was the BSBI, but any, anyway, the authority who was making records at that time obviously then changed. There'll be a new one a few years later. And they managed to present this case saying, oh, look, here this guy said there's loads of sea kale. This guy says there isn't any. And in the meantime, we know that people were picking sea kale. Therefore... Because people were picking sea kale, they've wiped it out, and that's why this guy's saying there's none there, right? And that looked very compelling. And, and you know, I looked at that and thought, okay, it's compelling, but I know better because I know that when we pick the sea kale and we pick a lot of it, it just grows back. So that can't be right. There must be, if it's true that the sea kale declined, it must be for a different reason. But nevertheless, in the meantime, I contacted David Pierman, who, who not only has been the county recorder for Dorset himself, he is also a, a sort of amateur historian of botanists in a way, and he knows the story of all of those guys who published those floras and whose evidence was being presented. And he ripped it to shreds. He said, this guy, I know for a fact he went to this end of Chesil Beach and not that end, and it's the <laughs> other end of the sea kale that. This guy only came to Dorset at a certain time of year and did his botanizing within a very short period, and he never went to the places where the sea kale grew. So it was only the one of the guys 
that actually walked the beaches where the sea cow was. And he said, there's plenty of sea cow. So, you know, it's just, you, as you say, you have to interrogate, you have to have someone that's got the mm -hmm. know to interrogate. Well, actually, you know, what, what, what is the basis of what is written down here? You know, mm -hmm. it turns out what lies behind it in, in our case was, was it, it, well, things were not what they seemed basically. They, these guys were not qualified to say whether something was there or not because they hadn't been there at the right time or, or they hadn't been there or they hadn't been there at the right time yeah. well you're trying to find the truth aren't you yeah that's what you're what basically that's what you're trying to do not just write something that is just entertaining for somebody for me i you know i i have to live with myself having you know i worry about my book i worry because this book for me is like this jigsaw puzzle mm. and um what i've done is i've got all these pieces and i've managed to put lots together but there are all these stray ones as well and there are these big holes and 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 some pieces can seem completely missing and some seem stuck under the cupboard or something like that and i know that there are answers and in, even what i've written will have to be challenged at times because someone will come up with information that is is has a better context and has more sub substance and and I'm, i i know that and i never want to write that book again but i hope that people will make more sense of the picture you know if people tell me i'm wrong that's fine if they tell me wrong that i'm wrong simply because that's what they feel you know it's something an idea they've got and people have done that oh no 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 but you know i say okay you're saying i'm wrong but i need you to give me evidence of why i'm wrong and then when you're given the evidence, you know, I acknowledge that I will be wrong, but someone had to start somewhere. And, um, exactly. you know, you say, you say, you say that you want to know the truth. Mm. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, actually that reminds me of Oliver, Oliver Rackham again. Do you, do, do, do you know, if you said something to Oliver Rackham and he thought you were talking rubbish, do you know what he'd say to you? He'd say, I'd like to see some evidence for that. Mm. And yeah. when he first said it, I didn't realize just how much of us, uh, you know how kind of deeply he was basically saying you're talking crap. <laughs> you, <know>? <laughs> <laughs> you were talking crap. If Oliver Rackham said to you, "I'd like to see some evidence for that," basically. Yeah, yeah. But 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 you say that you want to know the truth, right? Yeah, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah. there are a bunch of people out there, including Natural England and the, and the judge in our case. But you know, across the board, there's in this in this we do live in this. A lot of people are living in this post-truth zone. I don't even know what I call that because I think there's a, there's a whole kind of lot of space that people occupy that never has cared about the truth. You know, I think, I think if, if, if you're honestly saying, I don't care if I'm wrong, just give me some further light on the subject, you know, I think that's where we've got to stand. But unfortunately, a lot of people are not standing there. They're saying, no, I don't care about the truth. I care about shoring up my preconceived position and don't touch it because I feel comfortable here. This is the way I want the world to be. I've managed to construct lots of things that prove to myself that I'm right and don't mess with it because I don't want to do this difficult business of deconstructing what I think is true. Uh, I'm quite happy being where I am. And, and, and I think that's awful, actually. I do think I that's awful. I don't understand it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm afraid we have to be, just be realistic. Not everybody is trying to get to the truth. Some people are deliberately and big, big, powerful forces in the in the world today. Unfortunately, I mean, it's all right if your neighbour just wants to be ignorant and believe that you know the Russians didn't really land on the moon and 
and whatever, you know. You think, okay, fair enough, flat earthers, fair enough. I mean, you have to just kind of shake your head and walk on. But like, when, when massive, powerful uh, forces like governments and corporations um, are, are deliberately uh, concealing truth um, just because that's going to upset the status quo if, 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 we, if we get to it. Now, that's, that's it anyway. anyway. Mm. <laughs> Gone off on one. We but, could go on to politics next, couldn't we? <laughs> let's not. <laughs> yeah. No, let's stick to nettles. Let's let's stick to, to the wonderful nettle journey that that, uh, that you've been on. So anyway, so so I I have republished my book this yeah. year, um, yeah. with my the help of my son, who is actually an architect in Paris. Um, he 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 proofread it really fiercely, but actually, we we work really well together because. If I said, no, no, I really can't change that because I knew why I needed, he just accepted it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it was sort of weird to be proofread by your son. <laughs> and he put the book together as well, actually. And, and um, <clears throat> the cover's got a photo by Alan Brown because he's taken some wonderful mm. pictures of his neck of fibre. So I feel... I've seen some. I, They're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. I know. So, um, you know, it's been a, a joint effort, really. <clears throat> but but I feel I can draw the line under it now. And now it's for someone else to take it forward. But, but you know, if it turns out that I'm wrong, that's fine. <clears throat> because I had to do, you know, I, I had to present the information. I remember Laura, you know, from Q, I remember her years ago. She said to me, Gillian, you've got to publish this. Mm. Um, and I so I felt like I had this responsibility first time round yep. to, to present what I'd found. Um, and whatever people did with it after that was up to them. You know, it's fine. I've done my bit. You know, I can move on to other things. I'll try. <laughs> so, can you can you can you kind of let me in on some of what you found? Like, I mean, what's what's mm. the you know how far um, back, for example, how far back does um people using nettle fibre go? Oh. Is it is it is it like do we go right back to Paleolithic times? Is there evidence from there? Or? Or is it just it's hard to gather that kind of evidence? I've written in there whatever I found about any archaeological finds that are at least proved or thought to be netofiber. You know, I've qualified it if it's uncertain. Um, <clears throat> so I've put all of those in. And of course, time, you know, as time goes by, the identification methods have become so more sophisticated now. I remember when <clears throat> I was, I actually went to County Durham to do um, a metal identification course. Um, I wasn't very popular actually because this was a, a famous identification woman. I went on her course and I took up my little bag of metal fiber <laughs> and she wouldn't allow me, to, she wouldn't allow us to look at it at all. She was quite cross with me. I don't know why, I don't understand. Um, anyway, uh, so I did this course which is really useful and um, I remember going after that to. Uh, Denmark to Copenhagen to look at the various um, nettle fibre samples they had there, including the, the Voldofter piece. You know, they, there's a little piece, the, one, the most famous net, archaeological nettle find is the Voldofter find, um, which was a grey find. And um, um, the funny thing was that they'd lost it in a cupboard. I think because nettle fibre was, I think they hadn't really... So who was that? 
Where this was, was just in the museum. It wasn't really lost. It's just they had to rummage in the cupboard to find it. <clears throat> and it's a really, really famous piece of um, cloth. Anyway, so I saw this and um, various other things. And I remember going to a sort of one of their offshoot places and this woman showing me this amazing piece of what she said was nether fibre, but it had been brought in and they wanted to identify it. And she said to me, how do we identify this? <laughs> I thought, why are you asking me? <laughs> Have I got, am I really the only one left? But anyway, I think people got to the end. Were you able end. to do it? Oh, no, 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 there's no way I could have done it. But they, I think they've got to the end of their resources in being able to identify the difference between um, metal and something like flax. You know, that was the problem. But now, of course, they're using um, far more sophisticated methods, which I've written about in my book, but I can't remember because it's quite technical. And so I've been had to do that very carefully. But you know, they're getting to the point where they're able to actually determine whether something is metal. Is it isotopes and things like that? So they're finding out not only whether it's metal, but where it actually grew as well. So things have got quite Amazing. clever. Yeah. And so, so it opens up all sorts of possibilities for further identification. But of course, you know, metals, cloth doesn't last very well in the ground. So uh, it's not always easy to, to find samples. Um, so that's that's quite interesting. But then then I tried to I tried to look at the issue of language because when we say nettle, well, as you know, uh, there are a large number of nettles in the Urticaceae family. So, and and various um, genera have plants in them that have fibre in the stems. So they're used in, in different parts of the world. But, you know, we don't have many in this country. We've got the dioica and the urines. And we've got pelletry on the wall. Now, I was going to ask you. <laughs> you can't, about you that. can't make, get much fibre from that. But it's, it's a metal species, you know. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? So, But anyway, within that big picture, you've got the Nepalese nettle. That's an urticaceae in the urticaceae family. And you've got rami. Now, rami is being produced for, you know, it started being produced in China and um, in India. It also grows wild in different countries. So, But it's been a commercial crop for a long, long time. It doesn't grow very well over here at all. Um, they have grown it in some parts of Europe. Uh, but they they have imported rami for a long time. So Europeans have so been... species? Sorry? That's an Urtica species? No, that's a Bomeria. But still within the same. Yeah, still within the uh, that is genera is or genus is 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 Bomeria. So um, people have been using that as as, as a source of um, fibre for, for cloth, and it makes a very fine cloth. And if you see rami, it's got quite long, very white, shiny fibres. You can buy it easily. You know, it's it's available. Um, but of course, it's called nettle, and ah. the same with. The same with the um, uh, Nepalese nettle, the Girardinia diversifolia. That is also called a nettle. They are nettles, but they don't grow here. And it's what not, it's not our nettle. So when we talk about nettle, we think of the stingy nettle. But people also use these different fibres. And if it says nettle on there, it could mean those. And that's fine. They are nettles. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's um, uh, stingy nettle fibre. 
So if you go back in time and look at records about when it refers to a nettle, so what nettle are they referring to? Are they referring to an import or are they referring to our native singing nettle? So you have to always be having that in your head as well and looking at the context, looking at the possibilities, looking at the wider history. You know, I had to look up, oh, amazing bits of history to find out the context of, you know, where nettle might fit into this. So, so I've, I've tried to do this as with records that, you know, I only, can only use what's there to, to be looked at. Um, and But I did discover that nettles kept having a, a revival when there was a crisis in history, so the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil Wars, the, the World Wars, you know, when imports were res um, uh, restricted, then suddenly people got, oh, we're, we'll get some fibre out of nettles, you know. Imports of cotton? Yeah, yeah. So, most, well, certainly American Civil War, that was, that was mostly to do with um, the imports of cotton. Um, but... Uh, well, and also probably, yeah, the, the, the two world wars as well, because we've become dependent on cotton then as well, hadn't we? Um, not sure about the Napoleonic War. So it could have been cotton because the Industrial Revolution had got revved up by then, didn't it? It's sort of into its swing. So um, so the story that I've told lots of times, and I'm just hoping this isn't a bibliographic echo. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that the is that the First World War um, German army uniforms um, were made from nettle? Yeah, Mrs. Greve, botanical herbal. Uh, was she right or was she wrong? Come on. Well, you know, there's another thing in there that she's written that I really pursued, and it was sort of, sort of dodgy thing that she'd written. And but you know, I can't say no until I've proved otherwise. But Jens in um, Hamburg did say to me many years ago that there was not a lot left evidence of that and when I've read all the stuff um all the stuff around the world war one certainly world war one publication you know the, in, this is what I found in Q a lot of stuff that people have written a lot of it was propaganda and and also there is these other possibility that it could have been Rami okay um because that was that's also a nettle and, and there is a reference somewhere to the use of Rami in, in soldiers' uniforms. But I think until it's proved otherwise, I would prefer to be suspicious. Yeah. You know, I, I would want the evidence. I, 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 my, my default position is suspicion, <laughs> only because I've you know, learned to be suspicious, not just take things at face value, but to say, okay, so this is interesting. Can we follow this up? Can we find where does it come from? You know, what is the evidence for this? And so often, you know, it just falls to pieces. So sorry about that. It's just yeah, no, you're, you're you're Oliver Rackaming me. I love it. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not at all. No, no, you you actually. I'm glad you brought that one up because it's a very common one, and it gets really going out. It, it's really out there that one. It's and it makes... I love a good story, but the thing is, we 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 just don't want to find ourselves guilty with these really important subjects, of of of, you know. It, really when push comes to shove our philosophy is don't let the truth get in the way of a good story yeah. <laughs> so, so that is a great story about the first world war army uniforms but if that's as thin as the evidence is that grieve said it and everybody's been repeating it ever since see i've forgotten where i got it from that's yeah. the problem with bibliographic echoes i was studying mm -hmm. that book it's probably where i got it from um but i didn't inquire i didn't i didn't interrogate it as hard as you have 
Well, you'd have to do it for the rest of your life because she's got a lot of information in her book, isn't she? Oh, yeah. The thing is, is, if someone comes along now and says, actually, no, you are wrong, it, they really well used, and this is the evidence for that. That's it. Um, that's right. fine. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. The, the thing is that, that Gustav Braderman wrote a book called, which he published in 1950, called Die große Nessel, and it's a very famous book if you can read German. Well, when I first got in contact with Jens, it's unbelievable. He posted, oh, this is really dangerous. Hang on, just got to calculate time. Okay, we're past the 70 years copyright thing, nearly. Um, he sent me a copy of this book. And I photocopied it every page. And I've used a small section of it um, because I can't read, you know, it's quite complex and things. I would love to be able to read it, but I don't think he says, I don't know, maybe he says in there about First World War. Anyway, so um, I would be very happy if someone could come along and say, actually, they were used and this is the evidence for it. That's fine, because that's the truth. You know, I, but I can't, I haven't found that truth yet. I just haven't found it. No, I so, think it'd be great. We we want to have a proper evidence base for what we're doing because otherwise it, we're just talking nonsense. We're just yet another crowd of people spinning a spinning a good yarn. Yeah. Oh, I know because what Braderman did say in his book, he said, um, if anyone had managed to find a, an effective way of extracting metal fibre, we would know about it. And also after the First World War, um, he and another man. Um, went on to try and continue the research, which is also evidence to me that all these claims of what were going on in the First World War were meaningless because otherwise they would have carried on, wouldn't they? But then it was after that they decided to try and crossbreed these nettles to produce a higher quantity of fibre in the stem. Um, so, I mean, there was all sorts of things went on during the wars and who knows what's true and who knows what's propaganda. Can we can we get down to what is the prospect for the future? Because like we're looking back and saying, well, we're not really sure to what extent it was done. We know it was done, mm. it can be done, but it seems to me that you're suggesting that like a large scale manufacturer of German army uniforms would have been tricky because at that time they didn't have techniques to mm. make particularly efficient means of production. But like, is what is your opinion? Uh, given that we have all of the kind of science and technology at our fingertips now, and we have all these tinkering people that can talk to each other and, and help move forward a lot faster than people could have done in the past, do you think there is a realistic prospect of, of there being a large scale, um, even if it's cottage industry scale, or it could be part industrial process, part cottage industry with, with the fiber? I mean, that's, that's what I'm guessing, that like we need some maybe industrial processes to, to speed up the processing to get a woven thread from it. And then people could cottage industry the, uh, the, 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 the next bit. I mean, but anyway, what do you think? During the 90s and beginning of the century, there were several projects going on around Europe to extract nettle fibre. Those projects have all come to an end. Now, it may be that the funding ran out because it takes several years to, to set that sort of project up because you've got to grow the nettles probably in the first place. Most of them have used the nettle fibre clones, you know, the crossbred nettles, high fibre nettles. Anyway, what I found very, very difficult when I was doing my MPhil 
was although I looked at all these academic papers and about these various projects, they don't give you all the information that you would need to, to carry on to another project. So my opinion is that within academia, there's a lot of keeping information back um, for whatever reason. Um, and I think that's a bit sad. Also, within the commercial sector, people are keeping back information. They don't share information about processes and sources and things like that because this is their thing and they want to make a profit. So there's a problem here. The nice thing about the Nettles for Textiles, although it's not commercial, it's not academic, the purpose of that group is to share information. And because information is shared, then that builds a bigger body of knowledge that people can use and work on. The thing is with um, commercialization that you need homogeneity. How do you say that word? Um, homogeneity. Homogeneity. Yeah. And nettles are not homogenous. Yeah. They are different. They have different um, size stems. They grow to different heights. They have nodes on them which get in the way. So already, you know, right from the beginning, they are a problem because once you're starting to um, create processing machinery, you've got to take those things into consideration. Um, people are using, on a sort of artisan basis, they're using different methods of extracting fibre which produce a different end product. Some people are... Um, using full length what they call nettle um, nettle fibers which in fact are the glued together little tiny fiber cells okay um so they're, they're in fact not they're just in nettles because they're they're quite um they're quite loosely connected compared with flax in fact flax are much tighter together um so in the commercial sector, they want to separate these single fibres and to them, you know, obviously because you get then a very, very fine cloth, like cotton, potentially, because it's that fine. Um, but you need, but the fibres are relatively short, so you can't use cotton machinery because it, it can't adapt to the shorter fibres. Now, I'm very happy for people to correct me on anything this um but this is what these are my feelings is that we 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 live in a world where academia and um businesses are not willing necessarily to share what they've got freely but there is a paper that i wrote with my supervisor and she did most of the work but she needed me to to do various bits and um it's quite <clears throat> a well-known one that people want to read and um, it was published in a journal. And then this was bought up by some company. I, we didn't even get a copy of the journal. We weren't allowed to have one unless we bought one, even though it was written for nothing. And now, if I wanted a copy, except I've got one, um, if I wanted a copy of that article, I'd have to pay for it. And I think that isn't fair, actually, mm -hmm. because what is this company doing taking my work yeah. and and, and, and selling it on. So I've made that available if people want it because I, I'm, oh, I should probably go to prison after this. Someone's going to come and arrest me <laughs> for declaring all these things. But well, they should just... go, to, go to prison or at least hang their head in shame, you know, that they <laughs> profit from other people's knowledge and, and, and also that they, yeah, they're not 
they're not disseminating that knowledge. Yeah. Oh, no. So <clears throat> there are these problems within within um, the commercial sector, and I, uh, you know, after all these various projects that have been done, one after the other, where is the nest fiber? You know, where is it? Who's who's um, producing the cloth apart from Kamira? I mean, there are one or two little places that you hear about, but they don't tend to want to tell you anything about what they're doing or where they get their nettles from. Because I always ask, where are your nettles coming from? Because if they then say China, I think, when they're probably not stinging nettles then, are they? You know, that that's my chain of thought. But um, I don't, We we I've had this discussion with people and um, my fear is that if, companies or academia come and take the knowledge that is being shared like on the Facebook page yeah, yeah. and then use it for their own purposes and don't give anything back I feel that's sort of like stolen information you know we need this world doesn't need to be keeping that knowledge because I've seen it with with a lot of people like local historians sometimes you come across and oh they've done all this research and they're not going to let anyone publish it or see it it's mine it's my research but what they don't realize it will die with them because no one else is going to be interested in looking at it you know when you research if you if you share that then it enriches someone else's research it all becomes bigger and bigger so and this is what we need to do um we've got a lot of problems in the world we need to be sharing information about how to solve the problems. And the same with nettle fibre, we should be sharing. But I'm not sure that that will happen within the commercial sector. But I do see, I do see a future for artisan people um, developing a, a, um, a technique that can almost mass produce and be doing it within communities you know i think it's it's a, for us the people who are um involved in um sort of managing the nettles for textile stuff we all have the same philosophy that the information is for sharing and we want to see mm. this being making people's lives better or mm. creating work possibilities or you know all those sort of sustainable things that that we should be working for does that make sense well, it does. I, I mean, yeah, that's great. It's great to get that perspective. I mean, the, the, I'd add another one to that list. For me, it's it's land use, like because one of one of our big uh, things, what what um, what we're trying to do with forage and and with the more recent thing we set up called World Wild, which is a community interest company. So everything we're outputting is really working towards a specific end, and that's that's like change of of land use, tra change of relationship between people and that, and that the, the the idea with that, it is basically the what what is at the heart of was what was being banded around in 1992 about sustainable development with the big Rio summit there, which which as I see it is trying to reconcile the apparent conflict of interest between human need for 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 stuff and mm. and and places to live and transport infrastructure and all of that you know all of the needs of civilization um and the need of the rest of the biosphere to to to, to maintain you know the the species diversity and the abundance of populations you know that we, we don't just have lots of species that are not going extinct but just hanging on by a thread so if you pardon the, the pun in the light of this conversation um and and you know that we 
basically we have the, the the biosphere thriving and us thriving this idea and 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 to reconcile the tension between the two it seems to me is we have to get our acquisition of resources and everything else that we need um whether that's transport infrastructure or housing or whatever has to start working within the flow of life you know within what is being produced by these organic systems or what is being produced by the sun for example or winds or waves or whatever and so for me my fascination with 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 nettles is the fact that they are potentially um a a, a, a an organism which is abundant self-sustaining hard to get rid of um all of the things you'd want from a from a, a crop but one that lends itself to multiple use by humans but is also providing multiple benefits in terms of ecology because it supports all kinds of insect life and and whatnot so for me that i'll just add that to the end of the list you know like the cottage industry the, the all, of, all of that stuff but but like if we had a real a strong economic use of nettles, then that would that would be. Um, I mean, you know, there's a bloke. I keep repeating this story, but there's a bloke for Scottish National Heritage. He's that he he was when I spoke to him. Their biodiversity officer. He was complaining about farmers not tidying up so much anymore, and so loads of land was just being taken over by nettles, which for him was a bad thing, because it didn't speak into the whole overall species diversity. But for me, it's a good thing because imagine we're taking the pressure off other land that's being used to grow cotton or whatever. And now we're getting lots of fabric from nettle fiber from, from land that is basically wild land because it's still using, it's part of the flow of all of this ecology. And we're also using the nettles for, for, um, so I mean, if we list it, you know, we've got nettles for leaf for, 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 for uh, pestos and greens and teas. We've got nettle seed for all of the health benefits to that. And we've got the whole plant, which can eventually be used to make fertilizer. But if we've got in the middle of that, we're harvesting it for fiber. Anyway, that's my basic, that's my kind of nettle manifesto there. But like in, in the light of the fact that it, it, it's, 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 it's basically sustainable land use, which resolves that tension between conservation and, uh, and our need for stuff. You know. I, <clears throat> there is a thing that's cropped up recently, an issue about... If we harvest and because they, they they really are important for um, invertebrates. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen BN is it BNK Davis uh, nettles nettles for insects and okay. it's, a, uh, it's a really interesting gives you quite a diverse That's look at insects. It's a, no, it's a book. It's a book. Anyway, um, we'll link that at the bottom of the page with, with, with along with yeah. the other books. Yeah. Okay. Um. So um, we've had this discussion about if you like the early harvest of nettles, is that going to disrupt the sort of life cycles of, you know, butterflies laying their eggs and this sort of thing? I mean, I actually I was clearing of some in the sense that they were near the vegetable plot. They were going to be seeding into my vegetable plot. I had to cut, cut down some nettles um, <clears throat> and. Um, um, I discovered a, a really beautiful, and I can't remember what it, what it was, beautiful chrysalis on this nettle that I chopped down. And I felt really bad, you know, at least I photographed it. But <clears throat> I felt really bad. I thought, oh, if only I'd looked. Well, obviously you can't do that. But if you do decide, okay, we're going to do an early, I've just, because it came to me when you were talking, if you do decide to grow a crop of nettles, maybe you need to, have a variable 
crop. So you have one bit of crop for um, the leaves, one for the stems, so that if you're harvesting them at different times, whatever creatures are being disrupted can then move without having to go very far. They can just move over. You know, is all that a bit simplistic? No, but that's, you know, the thing is, they want if they're going to be disrupted, yeah. they're going to need to go somewhere yeah. where they're happy. Yeah. So maybe you 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 do a sort of multi-faceted crop instead of yeah. just one monoculture for fiber. Maybe that's the way to deal with that problem. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but you could do that actually. Couldn't you? I ju I just think that the the main point is we're we're we're, we're addressing these questions, you know, and and if. If the uh, intention is to have something that is, um, you know, just making our presence gentle, you know, that, 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 that like we need to be able to have stuff that doesn't eradicate everything else. We're not just stomping all over everything and saying we mm. need stuff, get out of the way. You know, if we're actually trying to reinvent a, a system of production, you know, that goes back to earlier times, but but it's it's not going back. It's actually going forwards. That now we're looking at how can we, how can we design basically ecological systems of production? Uh, that, 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 of course, these questions are going to be asked from the outset, you know, not, not as things to throw obstacles in the way, but just think, well, we just need to think about this a bit more. Right. But that's where the tinkering comes in, you know, because 50,000 nettle enthusiasts tinkering around, we're going to come up with something, unlike, as you say, these academics and corporations. Who will come up with something and hide it? You know, we, we, we'll come up with something and share it, and 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 we'll we'll get there. You know, because I, mean, I look at the uh, the uh, the Aboriginal Australian situation, and I personally think that is the most advanced civilization that's ever occurred. Mm. So, were you ridiculous? Where was the technology? Well, their technology was the sophistication of their relationship with the land and other species. That was their technology, but that took fifty thousand years to develop because they were very slowly tinkering. You know. And they could only communicate with the tribes at the other side of the continent but along these song lines. And anyway, it was slow is my main point. And, and one of the things that I'm excited about, in spite of being quite a fierce critic of, of technology, is that the sort of things you're talking about, like with the Facebook page and, and, and the current situation with, with the Internet and the fact we're able to talk like this because you found me an email. I mean, all of, the, all of, the, all of this good stuff means that the information loops are much, much faster. Mm. But not at the expense of like with the fast information loops with smartphones becoming obsolete every three weeks and all that, where, where that's a real problem. And the yeah. pace of change is a real problem that we don't know what kind of world we're living in because it will change again next week. But this fast information loop is, is weaving us back into the fabric of life. That's mm -hmm. what I find so exciting. So um, it sounds to me like you're not thinking that, that overnight we're going to have some incredible... Uh, Nettle textile thing, but but the, the, but the, there are distinct possibilities. Yeah. For, yeah, but on, I would say on a much smaller scale. Yeah. On a much more humane scale as well. Yeah. Which is more manageable and more more you know you can make it more sustainable because you're you're doing it on a smaller scale and and it's benefiting in a lot of individual people instead of one lot of shareholders. <laughs> I would like by a smaller scale. And I know what you mean by a smaller scale. You're saying not not a factory and not a huge production line and, and not mm. product being made as three million units of that one product. But I, I'm thinking on a larger scale, just in terms of the volume of nettles that people get in their hands on and turning into fiber. 
you know, mm. a fabric. You know that potentially, if we if we develop these 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 methods, basically, which is what we're talking about, um, that that millions of people could be using some nettles that grow in their garden, just basically loads of nettle being used. There is another issue as well, and that is um, is is our whole view of textiles as a whole, because ideally. It would be wonderful to have a nettle fibre industry that replaced cotton, um, particularly cotton and certainly um, plastics. Organic cotton that's grown sustainably is, is, is OK. But as an overall thing, cotton is a bad thing because of the pesticides and because of the amount of water it uses. Um, and um, it has an unfortunate history as well. Um, so it's like you mean. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it sort of makes you uncomfortable. But, you know, we, cotton is a wonderful cloth. You know, it's, it's one of the best. But it comes at a cost. Um, so if we could produce nettle fibre to replace that, that would be good. But the problem is that people now want really cheap clothes. Um, and in the past, there was a whole different outlook on textiles. People valued textiles. It, it was really difficult to produce textiles. It took a long time, a lot of work. People didn't have so many. And in fact, you know, the, the poor only had, you know, if you go back and you've got these historical collections, people of like medieval times or something like that, people had um, just one outfit or two outfits. They just used to wear the same thing over and over time all through their lives until it fell to pieces or they just kept mending it anyway. And I'm sure it was quite smelly sometimes. But, you know, there were, and, and, and if you look at different cultures who, who have in the past, who like that Japanese culture, this, this idea of um, borrow, you know, this way of uh, mending things. So you continually, the poor had to do it. So they would keep all their spare bits of cloth when something got ripped or broken they would just mend it stick a patch on with this lovely stitching and and then you would end up with these amazing garments that were like patchwork um which became an art form wow. and, and people do it now they actually you, you want to look it up people produce borrow things you know what the art form was called in japanese do you know what the name for that was it's borrow it's borrow oh you've already said it borrow okay yeah yeah i thought but you I was... the english word but but you borrow no. is the japanese word yeah but but well, I, I assume it is the Japanese word, but in, in my book, I talk because um, I talk about I went to Japan actually and um, to look at some nettles. That that's another story. Um, so they, what I did learn was that the people in the mountains, the landless people, people who don't own land, who only had access to the wild, and there's there's several fiber crops over there, wild fiber crop plants, and they made this cloth. They used um. What they used to do is they used to get a, a fast fibre um, warp and then they would weave old bits of cotton or silk cloth in and they would make whole new garments with this sort of weaving, recycled weaving. And um, it's called something like saki ori. And then they would just keep wearing this. And when it was no, not fit for one thing, then it would be used for something else. And, and so that in the end, there was nothing left. So you don't get many samples left because it's all gone. It's all been fall into bits yeah. yeah so there was this you know cloth was highly valued but we don't have that anymore you know we really have so much it's coming out of our ears I mean it's mountains of of throwaway stuff 
And so we need a whole new view of cloth and its value and, you know, understanding of its process. And, and so it becomes what it was, but not that people get cold, you know. I don't know how that problem is solved, but in terms of nettle fibre, people will not want to pay what it costs because if, if you've got different people producing a small amount of nettle fibre, it's going to take a lot of that fibre to produce an outfit if they're going to be paid to do that. And that outfit, final outfit, would cost fortune. Yeah. So what, there is a problem. Yeah. But that's why I wonder, and as I say, I... This is not my, uh, definitely not my first port of call in terms of if I'm trying to imagine a, a future scenario, I'd, I'd, I'd try and wait until last to say, is there a high tech solution to this or is there a, you know, a chemical solution to this or something? Well, there should be. There should be. Um, but I don't think uh, chemicals are not the answer, but they have tried retting with enzymes. Okay. Um, I don't know how progress has got on with that, but that is a potential okay. use. Yep. Um, so but we, there, sorry. we might make a better production if, if we if we could find some kind of yeah <clears throat> some solution that that is scientifically informed or technologically mm. assisted kind of thing. Maybe other people will have the answers. <laughs> Maybe my knowledge is too old now. I don't know. Yeah, no, no. I'm just trying to see what the state of your um. You know how you can r reach into the possibilities. You know, with 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 what you what you know. You know, that's, that's mm -hmm. and I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to have off the back of this, we'll have a series of conversations about nettles and explore this further. Because, um, as you say, yeah, some of some of the others might, and and or or or, or somebody that hasn't even started thinking about this yet will join the conversation. Yeah, I mean, but this is—I'm just very hopeful that that people want stuff, and and that 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 is. Well, you know, just to respond to what you said about value, I, I think I think the issue that we've got, like value and truth, we've touched on that, haven't we? Mm. Like the the impetus behind the the, um, the the conservation movement is value in biodiversity, but to me, it's at the expense of value in human culture. You know, there's there's almost like a, a sneering. And anti anti uh, civilization, anti anti human, basically perspective. When people get really uh, impassioned about species extinction and biodiversity, they end up basically despising their own species. You know, and so we we we, we then value biodiversity at the expense of valuing our our own selves. And I, I think that kind of self loathing is 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 a road to nowhere. We're not gonna we're not gonna solve things. So to me, the the, the thing is. Is, is back to what the exact point you were just making about valuing uh, the products of culture and the things that we depend on. Because, you know, the mass production has basically led to, to a complete eroding of any sense of value. We don't, I mean, it's the same with food, isn't it? You could have been talking about food. People have made the same point about food, haven't they, over and over again. Like, but part of the reason, you know, we're not going organic and we're not going this and that is because people just expect to have all this disposable income and they don't expect to be paying, you know, 40 percent or 60 percent of their annual, their weekly income on food. Because but in the past, that fiber would have been so valued because it was so hard to come by. That food would have been so valued and people just wouldn't expect to have, you know, 250 quid or 500 quid to just squander on 
you know, a visit at some expensive hotel or whatever it is people do with their money these days. Yeah, I'm off on another rant, but like the, the, the thing, I just think the thing about values, one of the main things I think we have on our hands, if we're going to, uh, you know, successfully strive for a better future that doesn't just wipe everything out and cause everything go to go to hell, you know, is we have to sort out values, you know, like what, what, what really does matter, what really does, uh, what really is important. I mean, it's like, let me, let me, uh, I like to make a, a few little quotes, but one of my, one of my favorite songs is uh, All Along the Watchtower by Bob Dylan. And he says, you know, businessmen drink my wine and plowmen dig my earth. And none of them along the line know what any of it is worth. And that's, that's the thing we're dealing with, I think. We, uh... Well, people have got, a lot of people got disconnected from the natural environment. And that is maybe the cultural problem that people don't, have any sense of it so that is a cultural problem um, and that's when we become a problem when we don't work with it when we don't understand it when we don't respect it so you know that is where we are today and probably one of the main reasons why we're in such a mess i don't know and and i think the the yeah that's it we're we're um we're just not touching the ground so no wonder we don't know it and no wonder we don't value it mm. um i've actually i must tell you about my one of my granddaughters yeah. she's five she this year she made an announcement she said that she was nettle girl <laughs> she spends a lot of time fiddling with nettle fiber and and, and the recently she's been fiddling with willow so she's as soon as she gets a bit of willow in her hand she starts twisting it into a shape little bracelets and reeds and things and as there's presents to people whoever's there gets a willow present but anyway i just thought you'd like to know that there are there is hope there's someone out there who's going to carry the flag yeah maybe she's going to sort it out maybe she's the one that's going to work out how we can oh she is actually she is she's already said what she's going to be doing yes (laughs) but she is five yeah but she's coming she's on her way Yes. <laughs> that's fantastic well i think we better wrap this up because we've got as as i speak we've got one hour and 43 minutes oh dear <laughs> well, well quite frankly i can't see that we're going to be able to edit much out of this because it's been a wonderful conversation so i think we probably better stop chatting for now because uh, i'm not sure we can expect people to listen to more than uh, one hour and 43 um but uh Nearly one four four one one hour and four four nearly there. Okay. It's such well, a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you for and, having um, me. Yeah, you're really welcome. So you're the you're the first on the scene. You're the you're the one that's uh, broken this conversation open on nettles. Well, I, I have think, been I think around. Have... I've been around in nettles for a long time, so maybe that's okay. <laughs> you're, you're an elder of nettles. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. It's lovely speaking to you. So thanks for listening to this week's Worldwide podcast. Um, as ever, if you look on the forager.org.uk forward slash podcast page, you'll find the actual page for this particular episode, and there, there'll be links below that, um, which are mentioned in the, in the podcast, and just for, for you to explore Gillian's work and also the, the, um, the work that other people are doing around nettle fiber. Um, and also, we'd very much appreciate it if you go on to any of the um, iTunes or Apple podcast pages and, and leave a review. It'll perhaps encourage more people to come. 
um, and listen. But probably more importantly than that, if you could mention the podcast to people you know um, and just enable other people to tap into this material, we'd, we'd love there to be more people listening. And do get in touch and let us know um, where you are and um, what you're getting from these podcasts. And even if you have suggestions for people we, we should be talking to, that would be great. Okay, that's it for this week's World Round Podcast. 